0: night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to the show. Great to have everybody here tonight. Uh, sorry about last night. Now, I warned you on Monday night that our guest who was scheduled for last night's program, uh, Tanya Carroll Richardson, was going to be on to talk about angels. But she was directly affected by the winter storm that pummeled Texas, and she's been out without power for a couple days. And she emailed yesterday saying that, uh, you know, she had no power, things were crazy, and she really couldn't get her uh, mind around doing an interview tonight, which would have been last night. And I said, you know, no problem. Uh, Obviously, we understand, and we will reschedule and have you back on, take care of yourself and your family, get things figured out there, and be safe. But obviously, that uh, was a last kind of a last minute thing, so we couldn't find a replacement guest in that amount of time. So we had a best of a Beyond Reality Radio classic last night. So I hope you enjoyed it. It was a good one with uh, Lyle Blackburn talking about cryptids. He's one of my favorite guests. Uh, such a wealth of knowledge when it comes to cryptid phenomenon. Tonight we're going to be talking about UFOs with Darcy Weir and Stephen Bassett. They're filmmakers. And they have a new documentary that focuses on the life of Phil Schneider. And you may wonder who Phil Schneider is or was. um, But they'll answer that question for you because he has a fascinating story to tell. And Darcy and Stephen tell that story. Among others, they've done a lot of tremendous work uh, as it relates to UFO documentaries, but also Bigfoot documentaries and other work as well. So we'll have... Them, uh, them uh, go through, you know, basically much of their work. Talk a little bit about uh, each of it, and we'll spend most of our time, however, talking about uh, the film called "The Underground," which is the documentary of the life of Phil Schneider, and that will be a terrific discussion, I promise you. I do want to take a minute here and uh, acknowledge something and someone. Um, you probably have heard that today uh, it was announced that Rush Limbaugh has passed away. He began a public fight with lung cancer about a year ago, and he lost that fight. And uh, whether you agree with Rush's politics or not is really not important here from a radio perspective. Anybody who's been in the radio business knows how important Rush Limbaugh was, whether you're an owner, which I was, or whether you're a disc jockey, which I was, or whether you're a talk show host, especially if you're a talk show host, which I am. Um, He single-handedly revived and resurrected AM radio. It basically had been written off as a non-competitive entity. And along comes Rush Limbaugh, and all of a sudden, the AM radio stations in markets were the top uh, listened-to radio stations because of his program. He also created the modern talk format. The way we hear talk radio now didn't really exist before Rush Limbaugh. He created the format for what it is and he was the best at it. There's no denying from a radio skills perspective, he was a master. And um he 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 will be missed by the radio community for sure. Um and obviously those who agree with his politics will miss him dearly as well. But uh, he was a pioneer, a workhorse and uh, a trailblazer for sure and um godspeed Rush Limbaugh and thank you for everything you did. Not just for the country, but for the radio business and people like me who, um, you know, (laughs) came up in your shadow, basically. So, Godspeed to you. Uh, One more thing to remind you of before we take a break and get our guests on the phone. We are going to uh, ask you to subscribe to our channels, whether you go to YouTube or Twitch, either way. Search for J.V. Johnson when you find it. Please subscribe. And uh, also... If you if you are so inclined, we have a Patreon page. The Patreon page is a way that you can support us on a, a recurring basis. It's you know it's a couple bucks a month, whatever it happens to be, but it helps us fund the program and help helps us fund what we're doing here. Um, and if you're uh, able to do that, it's very very much appreciated. Obviously not required or not not necessarily demanded, but it's helpful. And if you go to Patreon. And uh, look for Johaw. It's just patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. And become one of our Patreon supporters. That would be great. Appreciate that very much. Let's go to break. When we come back, of course, it's going to be Darcy Weir and Stephen Bassett tonight talking about their film which is a documentary of the life of Phil Schneider, plus a bunch of other UFO topics with the two of them, because they are the experts in the category, and it's going to be a great conversation. It's beyond reality. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash That's J-O-H-A-W. So tonight we're going to be talking about a topic that we don't get to talk about enough, and that's essentially USO phenomenon. We've got two guests, Stephen Bassett and Darcy Weir joining us tonight. We've got Stephen right now. Darcy will be with us in just a minute. But Stephen, welcome to the program. It's great to have you with us tonight.
1: Uh, It's great to be with you.
0: While we're waiting for Darcy to come on, which should just be in a minute or so, um, tell us a little bit about you, your work, uh, how you got involved in all of this.
1: I entered the uh, E.T. issue back in 1996. I uh, went to work for John Mack as a volunteer at his Cambridge Operation Program for Extraordinary Experience Research. I spent four months there, and then I went down to Washington, where I have a place to stay, and uh, set up an office to engage the issue uh, politically. I had come to the conclusion that the problem was not science. It hadn't been science for some time. There was more than enough evidence to confirm the E.T. presence. The problem was political. The government had made a political decision to embargo the issue from the American people for national security reasons, and that embargo was still in place in 1996. So I said, I'm going to go after it politically um, and be an activist, political activist. I registered as a lobbyist. I was the first person to ever do so on the E.T. issue, and got a lot of attention from the Washington Post, and... I formed the Paradigm Research Group at that time to get service this political activism, and it's now been twenty, almost 25 years.
0: Why was it important for you? Obviously, you put a lot of effort and a lot of thought into this uh, for a lot of years. Why is it important to you?
1: It's, well, it's the most significant issue in the world. Uh, in other words, you could say, why, why someone who's an anti-war activist, for instance, or a civil rights activist, why is it important to you? It's usually because the issue is significant and may have some personal connection to the individual. Uh, this issue is transcendent. It's, it's huge. So getting involved in it was exciting. I was interested in the subject, though I'd never been directly involved with the subject matter. But I was interested in me. My background was, was I, I studied science and math and stuff like that, read lots of sci-fi. So I was prone to, to pick this up. And I, I was at the decision point in life, I was 49, and I had to decide, do you want to continue to just try to keep busy, pay the rent, and fade away, or do you want to actually do something that could be meaningful? Uh, a lot of people reach that point in midlife, and I made that decision that I think this is what I'll get involved in, come hell or high water. Uh, and so, And then you get involved and you get drawn into the issues, and you learn things, and I was lucky because the passion for the for the issue and what I was learning about the U S government and other things, uh, only grew over time. So it hasn't been, it hasn't been tough, it's been longer than I thought it would take. So <laughs> it's still a,
0: it's fine. Yeah, for sure. By the way, we do have Darcy with us. Darcy, are you there?
1: JP, I'm here.
2: How are you doing, man?
0: Terrific. Thank you so much uh, for being here with us tonight. Um, I'm pleased to have both you and Steven with us. Um, I I was just asking Steve uh, how he got started and interested in all this. Now, you're an independent documentary filmmaker from Canada, in fact. Um, You've done a lot of film work. Uh, When did the UFO thing or even just the odd, uh, abnormal, maybe paranormal topics uh, start to attract your attention?
2: Well, uh, you know, I, I was actually studying film in university, and one of my electives, was a astrobiology course called Life in the Universe. And um, we just learned, you know, all the basic uh, questions about whether life could exist, intelligent life. And, you know, a very textbooky class, and we did the Drake equation, kind of covered that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we didn't do the math, but we just discussed what, proposed, you know, that um, if there's uh, stars out there in our galaxy that are like ours, that have a rocky planet with water that's in the Goldilocks zone around a uh, sun-like star um, that could have evolved life like us, and eventually they had technology and they lived long enough to use that technology, hadn't destroyed themselves and, uh, you know, had learned to communicate with the stars and possibly um, travel into the stars. I think the, the Drake equation really finishes off uh, with the question if they've lived long enough to use their technology but haven't destroyed themselves with their technology. Because we, you know, we anthropomorphize everything, uh, and assume that all intelligent life that would evolve would probably go through the uh, same warring type uh, lifestyle that we choose. And um, yeah, I just I, I realized when I was around 20 years old that this is very possible that we're In this ocean of stars, just our galaxy alone could harbor millions of uh, intelligent life that, you know, are able to possibly communicate like we do. Um, And I think around that same time, I saw some of my first documentaries that exposed me to the idea that we have been visited by intelligent life and that uh, visitation is either being covered up or um, is not being told to the masses uh, the same way that we learn about the Kardashians or, you know, uh, famous uh, musicians' lives and stuff like that. Um, it's, it's really something that's kind of taboo to talk about. And... Um, Stephen Bassett, uh, you know, I've I've watched a lot of the disclosure type um, conferences that have happened over the years, and I was really interested in in featuring him in uh, some of my documentaries. So he's he's in a documentary I produced a while ago called "Being Taken," which we called the definitive documentary on the abduction phenomenon. We kind of talk about the history of it and the most prevalent cases that have happened in that history and the facts behind each of those cases that point to a credible incident that actually happened and wasn't just some crazy people looking for attention. And um, he's in two documentaries that I've recently produced called Volcanic UFO Mysteries. Um, In this documentary, we kind of cover a bit of history about the work he's done and how he got into um, the activism and ending the truth embargo with the the government uh, pushing disclosure. And then in this recent documentary, Crop Circle Realities, Um, He's back to sort of talk about his thoughts and theories on what the crop circle mysteries sort of mean and why we're constantly seeing this phenomenon. Um, So, you know, um, I guess a bit of his activism's rubbed off on me. I'm a filmmaker, but I, I love making films. In this documentary genre, because I believe that um, I'm just doing a little bit of work to try and unveil some of that interesting information that is not always being presented to the public. And if people watch my documentaries, they will be a little bit educated on certain phenomenon in this overarching story. And um, UFOs aren't just simple things, you know. Uh, it's a complicated issue, and there's many different facets to the story of human, humankind being possibly contacted uh, by interested extraterrestrial parties.
0: Stephen, have you, have you had a, an experience of your own? did you have any personal experiences that uh, helped you decide to commit yourself to this project? No, that wasn't a factor at all. I've never had an experience. How about you, Darcy? Did you have any personal experiences?
2: Never been abducted, but, um, I definitely believe the most credible cases out there. Yeah. And, um, I have seen UFOs Mm -hmm. on two separate occasions, but, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't have to have those experiences to want to make these documentaries. I think that if you watch one of my documentaries, you understand that there's so much credibility to certain phenomenon that's happening around the planet. Um, it's just kind of
1: undeniable
0: yeah, and I want to get into some of those uh, stories that you featured in your films, and I also want to talk about uh, The Underground, uh, one of your more recent films. Before we get to that, though, Steve, tell us a little bit about the where you think the status of disclosure is. You've been working at it a long time, and you said it's a slow process, but where do you think we stand right now?
1: We, I believe, are at the, the end of the game. I, I think, uh, as they say in chess, the end game. Embargo is seventy-four years old. Uh, informally began in nineteen forty-seven, with the, uh, the changing of the Roswell story the last minute in order to avoid it all coming out right That's then. Right. And then the, but it got solidified. It became more institutionalized after the fifty-two sightings in Washington, which scared the hell out of the government, Because they realized that these things want to fly over DC. They can do it. There's not a damn thing they can do about it. So they they instituted a truth embargo for national security reasons, and the embargo was locked in solid all the way through the Cold War. And it started to loosen up after the Cold War ended, which was good, uh, but not enough. And so we're now 30, 30 years on from the end of the Cold War, and the truth embargo is still in place. However, a major development took place in 2017, which... Is, and everything that's happened subsequent to that has convinced me that, yes, we're just about at the end of this. And that development, in a few words, was the of the Stars Academy was announced on October 11th, 2017. And as soon as I saw the website, reviewed the people that were part of this group, uh, their mission statement and so forth, it was clear to me what had just happened. Now, not everybody would have come to this conclusion, but then again, they hadn't spent 20 years doing nothing—nothing nothing but trying to figure out the truth embargo and how to end it. What it ha- the Truth and Start Academy happened because a substantive group within the Department of Defense and maybe other parts of the military intelligence complex, but probably mostly in the DoD. Privately came to the conclusion that it was time there was reasons they needed to get proactive on this they couldn 't just continue to hang on to the embargo uh, and hope for the best but they couldn 't act they couldn 't act from within the Pentagon. there was just no way they could personally somehow engage this issue while under the employ uh, of the government so what they did was arrange to uh, I guess you could say, have a non-governmental organization be formed that would uh, be staffed by former careerists within the military intelligence complex. Top-level people, too, not, not, not insignificant people. And, and they would no longer be an employee, and therefore they would be free to do things that the, this group within the Pentagon could not do. Um, so it was like a surrogate operation. And it would raise money as a public benefit corporation to pay for things and have a mission statement. It would be engaging this issue. And that would be the vehicle by which things could be pushed forward without compromising the people inside the military intelligence complex. I also knew right away that this could not be happening if the support in the DOD and elsewhere that was giving giving them the space to do this was uh, not great enough to withstand pushback from other segments of the military intelligence community. Because I mean, there were plenty of people I knew in the MIC that were not going to like this. Uh, so that was significant. Uh, there's always been people inside the government that favored telling the truth to the American people, always. That doesn't mean they could do it or they would risk their careers to try to advance it. But they've always been there. It's a question of whether it'd be enough that they could, Take some covert uh, specific action. So that that was the sea change. In other words, at that point, the for the first time in the history of the modern history of the issue, the military intelligence community was leading the disclosure movement. Not me, not Steve Greer, not any other colleagues you want to refer to. It was them. That had never happened. And so that was the Rubicon. It was crossed. Of course, I was waiting to see their first move. Uh, because that would tell, tell me how big a deal this was, how serious it was. And the first move was spectacular. Uh, they, in over a period of 60 days, they delivered some extraordinary information to the New York Times to be reviewed and vetted, which the Times did. Uh, witnesses were talked to and what have you. And then they, they dropped two huge stories into the front page of the New York Times December 16th, 2017. And that involved the, a tip program, it involved a Nimitz event, it involved Bigelow, uh, Senate Majority Leader Reed, uh, it was two very big stories. And they included, and they included gun camera footage of UAP intercepts. The first gun camera footages of UAP intercepts ever released, formally released by any government ever. There'd been a leak back in 2007, I think. the a leak, turned up in a dock somewhere, but That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a formal release. This was huge because there are thousands of gun camera footages in the vaults of almost all of the first world countries. Uh, All of them have airplanes that they use to defend their airspace. They've been filming these bogeys and intercepts for a long time, but those films go directly into the vault. They are not allowed out in the public because if they were to get out, it would make the truth embargo impossible. But these three films were pretty good, and the Tic Tac was the most famous. And the Times put that up on their website. And since then, God knows how many millions of people have seen those gun camera footages. And so that was huge. And at that point, there was no turning back. And the question is how long it was going to take.
0: Yeah, it seems as though um, the introduction of that video footage which created quite a stir throughout the community and in the media who was paying attention um did it didn't end there as well it's the military seems to have loosened their grip on the pilots that actually filmed some of this or had had their own experiences and started to allow what seems to be an open conversation at least the beginning of an open conversation of part of this
1: that's astute observation yes um but to the stars, the, the, the formation of this was, was done privately. In other words, they didn't send out emails to all the agencies and military services were going to do this. Absolutely not. It, it just happened, and it caught the military intelligence complex completely by surprise. Uh, and so obviously, that's a risk. See what happens. How much pushback will there be? But what happened, in fact, in my view, was that I think people throughout the military services and throughout the agency, CIA, DOD, NSA, pick one, realized what I realized, that the uh, tide had turned, that now we were in the final uh, phase of the disclosure thing, that if there's a significant group within the DOD willing to do this, it's probably time to get on board. And so what's happened since December 16, 2017, is a whole series of developments that were primarily in response to the emergence of the TTSA and the New York Times articles. And a lot of it focused on the Navy because the Navy was kind of caught up short as the key story given to the Times involved the Nimitz case from 2004 and then Tic Tac and all of the witnesses and the pilots that came forward. And the Navy had been sitting on that for 13 years, and they had told people not to talk about it. They they took the hard drives of some of the – uh, some of the coverage of the, of the event. And it's kind of awkward. So they they decided to get on the good side of this, and so they, they made some various announcements that uh, the pilots were going to have a different protocol, and they were going to be keeping these sightings, reporting, and what have you, and all, all good. Then the Navy announced, confirmed, that those uh, uh, clips were, in fact, from F-18s in order to shut up the debunkers who naturally showed up. And then the DOD confirmed that The clips were, in fact, of UAVs. So that was the DOD getting on board, meaning the Army cut a a cooperative research deal with the TTSA, kind of showing that they were on board, all right? And there's just been one development after another. Uh, Not as fast as it would have been because the political situation in Washington or in the country was anything but conducive to moving forward in something of this magnitude. Hearings were out of the question. The, 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 and the political media and the political class was utterly consumed with the president and the issues surrounding the president. And then, of course, the COVID epidemic showed up. Right. Still, they moved forward. And the, the most important thing your listeners need to hear is that uh, starting in 2000, I'm going to say maybe as early as to, uh, late 2018, but certainly no later, early 2019, mid-2019, uh, they started taking meetings on the Hill. Uh, Christopher Mellon led this. And he was bringing up the pilots, and they were briefing members of Congress and committee chairs. Uh, privately, off the record, no press, no, no press releases. And it was, it was not for public consumption. It was for the Congress's consumption. A few members mentioned they were briefed. That's how we learned about that. Then we learned that the president had been briefed, which is when I picked up stakes and moved back to Washington from California because I realized that the game was really afoot at this point. Yeah. Um, and, and then, of course, I've been watching the witness development that's been happening since the Unidentified series came out and what Louis Elizondo's been doing. And so, you put it together, it's pretty clear. They've been gathering substantial number of military witnesses and vetting them, some of which we've seen on the program, Some, many of which, most of which we probably haven't. And they've prepared the Congress to, uh, to take on hearings. And so the plan is quite simple. They intend to, they intend to initiate hearings in the Congress uh, for military witnesses on this issue, and those hearings uh, will end the truth embargo in a relatively short amount of time.
0: I want, to, I want to bring Darcy in here in just a minute, but before I do, how deep did the embargo go? At what point in the government is the line between no, knows what's going on and doesn't know what's going on?
1: <sighs> it's complicated. Look at for all of these seventy years, in all of the developed world, certainly major nations, those that had a need to know in this issue knew from the beginning, early on, and they've always that's always been the case so you've got your core need to know people uh, that have always been there and utterly of course not not in any way going public and then you had some people that were peripheral to them that maybe didn't have a need to know, but they were interacting with the subject in one way or another enough that they pretty much became personally convinced that it was uh, the E.T., uh, uh, without having to read any of the civilian books or what have you. And then you had another circle around them of people who uh, had kind of figured it out. They don't, they're not really intersecting with issue at all, but they're kind of noticing this and that, or maybe getting a, a tip from a buddy at lunch, and they're there at that group. They kind of figured it out, but they're not involved. Right. And then you got another circle around them of people that are just kind of suspicious. And that's pretty much been the case all along, though those circles have contracted and expanded depending upon the circumstances and probably similar in other countries like the UK, Australia, Canada. I don't know how it operates in in China or Russia or the Soviet Union, somewhat similar, but obviously much more autocratic control uh, and much less likely that people are going to step out of line. So, Again, the truth embargo is like the Cuba embargo. Nobody, everybody knows there's an island down there. <laughs> right. But you can't, you can't go. And you can't go because there's an embargo, which is legal under the law. And for the last seven years, very large numbers of people, even larger every year, sort of know, yes, there's extraterrestrials here, but we can't go there. Not yet. And it's kind of... Well, I mean, the Cuba embargo is, I think, awkward and probably should have ended years ago. The ET2 embargo is profound. It's more than just awkward. It's profound. And ending it and not ending it is, is one of the most important decisions the human race has made so far. They've decided to keep it 70 years on, uh, which which is, which had a lot of implications and consequences. But the, the decision to end it, which I think is underway now, hopefully no later than spring, uh is easily the most important decision the human race has ever made.
0: Switching gears a little bit, Darcy, I think you're, you're back with us here because we lost you for a second there. Um, tell us about uh, The Underground. What's this film about?
2: Sure. Um, I think the most important takeaways from this documentary is that the American government has had a long history since post-World War II in protecting probably some of the most explosive secrets, um, meaning exotic technologies not from this world, um, and the best way to protect those things is through probably facilities that are deep underground military bases. Um, We kind of discuss... What happened since 1944, when World War II ended, and Project Paperclip commenced on bringing over uh, previously Nazi World, you know, World War II soldiers and scientists.
0: Scientists, yeah,
2: yeah, to work for the American government on their own interests in. The military-industrial complex uh, building up and researching things clandestinely, um, and then we, you know, we have Richard Souter who really is an expert in this field, knowing the history and researching the government uh, repositories of many, many documents and uh, patents and such proving that there is some kind of research programs going on uh, to build these bases around the world, underground, uh, but also under the oceans, possibly. And um, and Richard Dolan discusses many theories uh, and cultures around the world that talk about basically crypto-terrestrials, so beings that... Um, may exist on a different plane, uh, which would be underground. Um, we are earthlings, you know, we, we live on the earth, but there, there could be possibly a place that's less hospitable for us and more hospitable in a controlled environment for some other beings. Um, and additionally to that, we have the Phil Schneider story, and this is a very controversial character. Um, some people believe his story, uh, and others don't. They think he's, you know, uh, maybe a raving lunatic. But um, I still thought he was a very interesting character. My partner in the film, Lee Lustig, you know, met with his family. I interviewed his late wife, Cynthia Dreer, And uh, she thought he was a brilliant man. He was um, definitely a sick man near the end of his life. And uh, he claimed that he worked on uh, military, industrial complex projects, black projects, uh, building underground bases. And his role... In those projects was helping tunnel out these bases, so deflagrating, which is like melting and exploding out different types of rock um, as you go through the earth, and uh, you know possibly planning tunnel boring machine operations and such, and. Um, he said in the course of building the Dulce New Mexico pay, base, they came across a chamber. And when they came into the chamber, there was apparently these supposed crypto terrestrials, or he said they were gray aliens, and he got into a firefight with them, and his life was saved by a uh, Green Beret and yada, yada, yada i'm yada yada yadaing it because um you know it's it's probably not true mm-hmm. but um his story as a lecturer at many of these u f o and he even he lectured at bigfoot conferences um his story is just quite interesting, and i think it talks about. It sheds some light on the fact that this UFO subject, first of all, is full of information, right? Some stuff coming from left field, some stuff coming from right field, and then a whole big thick patty in the sandwich right in the middle. And uh, you can't believe it all. Some of it's probably misinformation or disinformation, and there's definitely some truth, so... With him, uh, as controversial as he was, I think he still spoke at these conferences and shed some light on some true things that were going on, which included the cover-up about the extraterrestrial visitation. And uh, he was, he still is popular today, I think, because he is so controversial um, there's people that still believe his story, uh, to, you know, write down to the idea that his, he was maimed in this alien firefight and lost most of his fingers on his hand. But, uh, people need to kind of pull back from some of these stories, definitely, um, not leave everything that's thrown out into the media or even in this, the, the fringe media, and, um, and just use their logic as much as they can. But when you come to this subject, because it's so complex and there's so many different facets to the story, um, I think people tend to get attracted to the fantastical and the little green men's stories, right? Right. Um, I've been talking with Michael Schrapp for some time, very intelligent man, and he has covered for a long time, not not anymore. He he can't talk about it anymore. uh, But in years prior, he's done many lectures on... um, UFOs and, uh, quite specifically, the military's involvement in building what we would consider UFO craft, but uh, they would be black black budget um, aerospace technology and, uh, you know, TR-3Bs and all that sort of stuff. And uh, he says that people just are totally bored by that. Like, they just don't even... Air. Like, they, they want to f- fall asleep when they start to learn about, um, you know, uh, changing gravity and, and creating a false gravita- gravitational pull with aircraft uh, technology and, and changing, you know, the propulsion systems as we know it. And all that stuff gets me excited when I think about it, because it's like revolutionary in terms of technology he says, you know, what people are really, really, really attracted to are the little green men's stories. And, um, <laughs> and, and uh, it's true. Yeah. You know, some of the people that are part of these lecturing circuits and stuff in, in the UFO realm, uh, the most famous ones, talk about different types of aliens and their experiences with them, right? Um, And I think that would be the rarest type of thing that anybody would uh, have an experience with. I think the most common would be UFOs and um, possibly the most interesting should be the technology and stuff surrounding their propulsion systems.
0: Just to um, revisit how, what you started to tell us about this film, The Underground, when you started talking about these underground bases, just so we have an understanding, with the research you did and the work you did and the interviews that you conducted about this particular topic, what is the uh, assumed purpose of these underground bases? Are they operational? In other words, is the... is the um, U.S. government building bases for alien craft to operate out of, or is are they hidden storage facilities of some sort?
2: I think it would be a little bit of both, to be honest. Um, look, there's been a long history of UFO sightings around the very infamous Area 51, right? And even uh, Phil Schneider and Ron Rummel, his friend, who also passed away of. Mysterious sort of uh, circumstances. Um, they had videos because they went out to the Little Alien Inn and um, they they recorded Area 51 UFOs. And Bob Lazar, quite famously, was taking his friends out because mm-hmm. he had apparently worked in that uh, facility and. Knew where they were going to do do test flights of government, you know, operated UFOs or military operated UFOs. So he was taking friends and stuff out to to see those at night. And uh, you know, you look at the Dulce New Mexico Ridge, where uh, many people assume there is some kind of underground facility there. The locals seem to. Be quite convinced there is. There's many researchers and reams of people that have gone out to find out what's going on out there. And UFOs have been seen coming over the Mesa Ridge that in, in that area for years. Um, yeah, I think the main reason for these deep underground military bases is to have command and control, secrecy, and um, to conduct experiments and keep very highly classified technology out of sight, out of sound from the public.
0: Steve, when it comes to disclosure, obviously it's one thing for the government to come clean and say, yeah, we've seen them, they exist uh, we've got videos of them, maybe even have had contact with them. But do we? Do they go as far in, in the coming months or years as you see it and start to admit to these underground bases and these, uh, what seem to be a bit of a joint operation with alien uh, craft and life forms?
1: Here's the way to look at it. The goal of the activist movement is to get what some people call confirmation, which is heads of state, president of the United States, confirming the presence of extraterrestrials from elsewhere. That is disclosure for okay. the capital D. That's what I started calling it back in the late 1990s. It's a little confusing because small v disclosure is also happening all the time, but the event, the event where the government finally says, yes, they're here, that's capital D disclosure. And that's it. It's done. That's, that's it. it. It's been disclosed. Now, What comes next is the post-disclosure world, and obviously, uh, people and media and a lot of others want to know what the government knows, and they're probably going to want to know it sooner than later. So my job is to get the disclosure. Then after that, I'll be participating, along with a whole lot of other people, in kind of a tug-of-war that will go on, maybe for months and years in which the government will be taking the position that they, they, they want to give information out, but they want it to be as little as possible and take as long as possible. And the media and the public are saying, no, we want as much as possible, and we want it now. And how that's going to go is hard to say, uh, but over time, a lot is going to come out, including some of the things you've referred to. The order of which it will come out is uncertain. I think, uh, though, a, a simple principle will be, if I'm the government, I'm going to release the information, the initial information that makes that will make people happy, that will make uh, the government look good, it will not be a public relations problem. And I'll save the problematic stuff for later. So that may affect how that goes. But in, pro, in, in the post-disclosure world, you're going to see a lot more witnesses coming forward, uh, there's going to be an effort to get an amnesty program and a and reconciliation program. And some people may emerge that have information go right to the media that, that gets to the heart of some very controversial things. It's going to be fascinating, intense, uh, and probably not as bad as the government thinks, meaning people are not going to get quite as upset when they learn some uncomfortable truths, whether it's underground bases uh, or any number of other things. Uh, but for... On this side of disclosure, I'm sure they're all sweating it. I mean, they're they're worried This this is going to be a major impact on, on government uh, and on the world. And there are a lot of really tough questions to answer, which is part of the reason that they've been kicking this can down the road, uh, certainly for the last 30 years, uh, because it's just tough. And my, my action is, if it's too tough, find something else to do. Resign. Retire. Go away. Let some other people, younger people, take over. If you can't handle this,
0: and move on. It would seem to me that over the course of, um, I think you said 74 years, uh, that the embargo has been in place, but let's even, let's say the last 50 years, that uh, particularly American culture has evolved to the point where um, the ideas that we're talking about here tonight, are far more accepted than they were and probably far less scary than they were 50 years ago. Would you uh, agree with that? Would you say that to be true?
1: Absolutely. In 1951, I think the first sci-fi movie with E.T.'s in it, uh, movie now, there might have been some shorts or something, you know, these little things they used to make. Uh, and I forget the name of it, but it's easy to find. And that was uh, 70 years ago. Since then, there have been three, four hundred more or more movies made in the film industry, not small stuff, film industry, that have extraterrestrials. Uh, and these are the most lucrative, this is the most lucrative genre in all of film. No genre or subject matter has ever generated as much money for the film industry in terms of ticket sales, in terms of product sales or advertisement on television. I'm including television, series, and films, than, than the E.T. issue. The highest-grossing film of all time has extraterrestrials in it. The second-highest-grossing film has extraterrestrials in it. The third-highest-grossing film has extraterrestrials in it. Uh, so the, 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 and, and, these, and the film industry, of course, has gone worldwide. Uh, these films are everywhere around the globe, even into the less developed countries. So billions and billions and billions of person hours have been spent since 1950, humans sitting in a chair in a the theater watching ETs in in movies, doing this and that, and the, and the more recent movies are now incredibly sophisticated. We we fly all over the galaxy in spaceships, we encounter ETs and other civilizations, and so yeah, are we are we uh, well well indoctrinated? Yeah, we are. Are we prepared? Yes, we are. We've been prepared for some time actually. Uh, so that's not the issue now. Well, let me, the issue isn't at
0: the public ready. Let me let me ask this then. Following that logic and that line of thinking was, uh, just to pick a point, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio show in the 1930s, which scared the American public, at least a portion of it considerably, was that the image that the American public had about ETs and one of the reasons that it would have been so frightening for them to know the truth?
1: Well, I mean, they had very little it was 1933 they had very little information about it so in that sense it was definitely a huge unknown and and there the theories about the moon and mars at the time yeah so it was, this is primitive all right? right and he does a show where he doesn't tell them the truth and they get upset he does a show where they're they're at faking, but they're portraying a theatrical invasion That's right. by uh, beings from Mars. But the pe- a lot of the people that tuned in did not catch the disclaimer. And they thought it was real. And so they got a little panicky. By the way, the amount of panic that took place was far less than it was built up to be. <laughs> you can read up on that. It wasn't that bad. But the, the, the government back in the 40s and 50s, they 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 loved to seize on that, that uh, Halloween broadcast by arson Wells, as part of their little propaganda campaigns about, "Well, we got to keep our mouth shut here; right. we can't blow the line," and that's just propaganda. Uh, wh- what we're trying to do now is not lie to the people about something that's, that's happening that, that that's actually not happening or doesn't exist. We're trying to tell them the truth. The government wants you to think that people learning the truth will just absolutely go bonkers. This is nonsense. has been nonsense probably going all the way back to and We could have had full disclosure in 1947, and we almost did, and I assure you the American people would have handled it quite well, and the rest of the 20th century might have gone a totally different way. But that's hindsight. That's water under the bridge. Uh, right now, the only thing, the principal barrier to the truth coming out right now is the public relations problem that the politicians, the uh, military people, uh, service people, some scientists are trying to work out so it, they won't come out looking too bad. It's a public relations project, really. It's not a science project, uh, and it's only, incidentally, a truth project. It's like, yeah, we've got to get this done, and we want to look good. And that's kind of the, the, the last hurdle, but uh, they're making progress, and uh, I think it's going to come out pretty well. I think it's going to be win-win. For most of the parties involved, and it's not going to be too bad. Now, post-disclosure, there will be a few things that have come out that are going to raise hell, and people are going to get pretty fired up. But so what? I mean, what? that's happening all the time these days. Yeah. We're constantly getting fired up because of some god-awful thing. So if we have a few bad, bad moments post-disclosure, it's okay. Does that justify keeping this lie going even one more month? Absolutely not.
0: Part of the evolution of uh, public perception of all of this has been the stories of people who have had direct contact or, in some cases, abductions. Um, Darcy, you mentioned a few names uh, already in our discussion, but whose stories have you looked at specifically and included in your films?
2: Uh, Betty and Barney Hill, a famous case um, in the 1960s. Yep. And uh, you know, this is a mixed race couple. Very credible case because um, basically they were the first couple to be um, put through basically a, a psychological diagnosis. First, they found they were found to be quite incredibly mentally sane people and had gone through some trauma um, and through um, reverse hypnosis they were able to unblock these incredibly traumatic experiences where they were taken aboard a craft some medical procedures were done and then they were put back the American uh, Air Force got involved in the investigation. This is quite well documented. They found trace um, elements of radiation on their car that was, um, you know, kind of dissected by the research of of the Air Force and um, Betty's clothing was... uh, Examined and, and all kinds of things like that, but there was just all kinds of information that came out in their hypnosis and what they started to remember. Um, but then there's other cases that are quite interesting that also had multiple witnesses um, that didn't require hypnosis at all. Uh, Travis Walton. He had been working in Snowflake, Arizona as a uh, tree feller, you know, was part of uh, a logging crew. And when they finished their their work, they worked quite late into the evening. Uh, The men jumped into a truck. There was about four of them, and maybe it was five of them, including Travis. And when they were driving down this, Uh, this logging road, they saw around this this bend what looked like a fire in the sky. And as they got closer to this light, they realized this was actually a UFO that was hovering near the tree line. They went up to it. Travis got out of his truck um, and quite naively ran up under it and uh, pretty much soon after realized that was a dangerous and, uh, you know, naive mistake. Um, The men were all quite frightened. They saw him get kind of struck by a beam of light. He was incapacitated, and the men drove off thinking he was dead. Four days later, after the police had done multiple um, lie detector tests. They'd actually investigated by uh, seeing if these men had just made up some kind of lie, possibly killed Travis and disposed of his body. Uh, He turned up and, uh, you know, he told his story to the police and um, also passed a lie detector test and um, said the same thing the men had said themselves that taking aboard a craft that was not from this planet, these beings, um, you know, freaked me out, but they seemed to be trying to take care of me. And they brought me back. And uh, that's an incredible case. And and we uh, interviewed him. We interviewed Kathleen Martin, who is actually a, a niece of Betty and Barney Hill. Um, Kathleen is part of MUFON, and uh, she has also had abduction experiences. Um, there's actually a theory that some folks who have been abducted are kind of part of a bloodline, and it sometimes happens to other family members down the down the generations. Um, yeah and there's there's many other cases uh, I think what what's really interesting, the sort of congruence in um, in uh, interest here with Stephen bassett uh, is that Dr. Johnny Mack, who was a Harvard psychiatrist and uh, professor, he found this Phenomenon to be quite credible because he found these people to be not suffering from some some sort of psychosis. They seem to be telling the truth about an experience they believe they had, um, and Stephen got his start actually working for um, John Max Institution, uh, his research institution, and. Um, John Mack had basically worked with the most credible abductee cases. So uh, that really, we we cover that in our documentary, too, and just how it continues today. There's still people that say, hey, I've been abducted, and um, we have to look at some of these cases and, and really investigate them and see if right. they're credible.
0: Right. We lost a giant in this particular field uh, recently, and that's, of course, Stanton Friedman. Um, he was involved, right? You, you um, involved? Uh, talked to him for the documentary?
2: Absolutely, yeah. Um, so he, he was quite involved in the Betty and Barney Hill investigation. Any of the incredible stories that were happening in this UFO phenomenon throughout the ages, he wanted to investigate himself. You know, this is a nuclear physicist. He, he wanted to find out all the facts to see if there was some credibility to them. And he found the Betty and Barney Hill case to be in, incredibly uh, interesting and very factual. Uh, So we interviewed him for being taken as well. Um, And yeah, some of the work that he did was just looking at the physicist that had taken some descriptions from Betty in in her abduction experience. She kind of asked the uh, abductors, the, the people, the beings that were on the craft that took her and Barney, um, you know, where are you from? And they described a binary star system, uh, Zeta Reticuli. And through uh, another astrophysicist that was working and um, analyzing this case, she had done some 3D models and figured out exactly where this star system was in relation to ours in the solar system, or sorry, not the solar system, the galaxy, rather. And um, and we didn't even know of that binary star system at that time when the Benny and Barney Hill case had happened. And it, it slowly unveiled itself through uh, astronomy, uh, you know, astrobiology or astronomy catching up and, and identifying it. So it was a really interesting... Part of the story, Um, and uh, Stan Friedman uh, was an incredible guy because he he would go up against the biggest debunkers in the world that um, took on this subject in the mainstream media and would poo poo it. You know, we're talking about uh, Michael Shermer, Philip Glass, um, and the list goes on. But those are the Probably the two biggest guys, Michael is still around, but Phil class has passed and um yeah, I think he his work it was incredible to keeping this subject very factual and 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 making it so that um there were some legs to stand on so that we get to this eventual disclosure event that we're kind of living through right now.
0: We're almost out of time. We've barely scratched the surface of any of this. Um, I have a couple of questions that I'm going to throw out. These, these may be a bit beyond the scope of what you would normally be looking at or what you discuss in the films, um, but I'm curious about your opinions, and so is my chat room who offered some of these questions. Uh, let's start with, with you, Steve. What are, what are your thoughts on, if we are, in fact which it seems to be the case, being visited by craft from other worlds. Uh, you know, the, the space travel problem is a significant one. Um, the question from our chat room here is, what are your thoughts on um, the mechanism by which these craft are traveling such great diff- distances?
1: It's Basically, it's a workaround relativity, and they've figured it out. But if you were to uh, you just go online, and just hunt around for where our current physicists are with respect to relativity, you will find that we're starting to get in the ballpark of coming up with a way to do this. Uh, We know it's doable because they could not be coming from another star system without getting around relativity. Right? It it, would be ridiculous. It would take thousands of years. And so they've clearly got the workaround, which obviously has been very stimulating to every, every uh, scientist that got in touch with this issue going all the way back to 47. Once they realize they're, they're off-worlders, unless they're from our solar system, which is highly unlikely. So that means, okay, it's doable, so let's find out. So that's kind of speeded up the research. But the exact mechanism, I, don't, I mean, look, there is, I have read some things from, from some scientists that are trying to explain this, and I assure you it's almost incomprehensible. Uh, so the layman can't understand, I think, our current science on this, but I've, I've got enough background to realize that it's a legitimate approach. So uh, we'll hopefully find out post Uh or maybe if we have open contact with ETs, we'll, we'll eventually learn uh, what they have, how they've done it. But we'll probably, with, uh, barring other developments, we probably will have figured it out before the end of the century.
0: Uh, did you want to add, add anything to that, Darcy?
2: Yeah, I, w- I would just say that um, you know our concepts of what is possible is is they're they're constantly changing, they're constantly evolving. Um, if they didn't, then we would be dealing with dogma, which is a, a you know a religious thing, not true science. So we have to keep an open mind. Don't let your mind be so open that your brain falls right out of your skull. But um, (laughs) we're going to eventually, I believe, with disclosure, get the truth behind more and more of these technologies and possibly what the military have been testing and working on, that, that some of that stuff may come to light. Um, I believe there was a release recently to the news that um, the Navy had some kind of UFO-type space um, craft that they were they were they they were working on. They admitted that they were working on. So um, you can look that up. But yeah, I think the other thing we have to definitely keep in mind is that. If we're being visited, you know, if the theory of the Drake equation is is real, we're being visited by not just one intelligent uh, race. We're possibly being checked out by multiple. And some of them may have technology to come here, and some of them may only be able to send what would be considered a drone You know, something that is an unmanned craft that can pop into our planet, pop around our planet, observe things, and send data back. Um, We are doing that ourselves all around our solar system uh, with our own satellites, which are drones, you know, they're unmanned. Um, So I'm sure that a lot of UFO sightings that have happened over the years Uh, really fit that description. They fit something that um, is able to peer around and and check out our planet and what we're doing here, but doesn't necessarily have little green men because these are small orb-like craft, you know, or they're just something that looks like a flat disc. Um, Just they don't seem to have the volume or mass of something that would include occupants. So, yeah, people have to realize that 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 may be something that's at play here.
0: And uh, the second of these two kind of off-topic questions, but certainly related to what we're talking about, um, Steve... What about intentions? I mean, curiosity seems to be the most obvious motivator, maybe, but do you see any other intentions involved here by these alien races visiting our planet?
1: Army, on curiosity, ETs have been engaging us for a long time. Uh, there's no reason why extraterrestrials could not have engaged the planet to one degree or another as far back as you want to go 100,000 years, half a million years may not have been the same group, might have been different groups, but uh, in the modern era, um, there's work going on. They're doing some very significant work here. They're just on hanging out, uh, and we, most of the information we know about ETs uh, comes from the contactees, and there have been hundreds of thousands of reports that have been submitted by contactees, regular people. Who have submitted their, uh, stories to the researchers. This, uh, is just mostly been in the last 25 years, 20, 30 years, because the contactee thing really got underway in the, in the 80s, uh, exploded actually. And these, these reports, while they haven't been fully surveyed, that would take millions of dollars, but uh, enough of the reports have been examined to know that there is a, a consistency amongst a lot of the other reports about what these beings look like, what they're doing, how they conduct themselves. And it's sophisticated, it is not trivial at all, uh, and I hope that we soon learn a lot more about that. Uh, but that... Whether the government knows more about their intentions or their agenda than, than the public does or the, the, the researchers, public researchers, I don't know. Uh, if there's been any contact with ETs, direct contact, even if it's not diplomatic contact, but rather simply they've, they've had interaction. They may know more, but that's not been proven. So that's one of the great questions and one of the things we'll be looking forward to learning about once the confirmation of the reality of these things is finally done and we can, we can really start learning about this. And I think we're going to be pretty shocked and also pretty intrigued by exactly what they are doing here.
0: Before I, uh, before I hand it back to Darcy here, um, if people listening want to get involved in some way to help with this effort of uh, encouraging disclosure, uh, what can you recommend they do?
1: They need to get some information. They go to my website, they, they and they, can, they find the print media archive. There's just thousands of articles there where they can kind of get up to speed on, on the mainstream Analysis of all this and, and what's been written, uh, but if they if they if they know something about the issue and they and they're ready to get the truth, they want disclosure or the confirmation, as some call it. Start tweeting about that. Put it out on in your, in your Twitter, on your Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, saying, "Hey, we think it's time to hold hearings," and that's that's the thing you need to focus on because we have to have hearings to get the disclosure.
0: So they need to make noise. Like they need to be making some noise.
1: Make noise, yeah, and get 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 excited. Make noise, and that's already happening. Uh, beyond that, you can join groups. You can join groups on Facebook. You can support any of the organizations uh, financially, whatever. Uh, but get excited, get anticip- anticipate, uh, anticipate something happening, and and tell others about your interest and excitement, and that will help the Congress make the final decision to go ahead, and hold these hearings, and get this done.
0: Does Congress have the power to make this happen? It seems like most of them don't know it's, what's the truth is or what it isn't.
1: That's why the briefings have been going on since nineteen uh, twenty nineteen. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, they know more than you think, but the, the the Congress can call these hearings. They don't need permission from the president. Uh, the president could encourage it, but the committee chairs can call hearings anytime they want. That's why they've been briefed. Uh, that's why the, the preparations are being made, and and once those. Uh, those, those hearings get underway, uh, then the President and the DOD will be paying close attention and if the evidence just piles up to the point where it's clear to any reasonable person that we have an ET presence, then then the President will have a very comfortable option there to, to confirm it and it and will go pretty smoothly. So hearings, confirmation, post-disclosure world. Hopefully no later than the end of spring.
0: Wow. Okay. Um, Darcy, feel free to comment on the intentions question if you'd like to. But in addition to that, you have a bunch of films you've, you and Steve have worked on a bunch and you've got others. Um, where would you recommend people start in your, your film work? You know, f- which, which one should they view first? If there's one that you think is a preference and, uh, let people know where they can see them as well.
2: Sure. Um, if they want to see, any of my films they can just go to my website my studio website it's www.ocultjourneys.com and uh all my trailers are there film posters you click on a poster it'll take you to a site where you can watch it and some of them um almost all of them are free to watch on prime if you have a prime membership and uh, Three of them are free to watch on 2 TV, which, you know, you don't even need a membership
0: to watch. So, uh,
2: Have at her and would love some feedback. People can leave a comment on the IMDb page or on the Amazon Prime page. But uh, to your question, what I believe the intentions are, um, you know, the, there's lots of fear that's going on in the world today and um, I don't really believe... I'm kind of in the camp that, that doesn't believe that there's this uh, enslave humanity, let's eat them and suck their oceans dry type um, beings that are visiting. I think that based on... Lots of the information I've covered in the documentaries, and Stephen Bassett can talk to this. There's been lots of recorded evidence of intervention um, from UFOs going to nuclear facilities, like nuclear uh, missile facilities and shutting them down, and um, Lieutenant Colonel Jacobs, uh, you know, a, a professor who worked at a university later in his life. He recounts in um, the Serious Disclosure Project that Stephen Greer did that he was working in the 1960s on a dummy warhead launch, and he was responsible for recording that dummy warhead launch. And in the film, they saw a UFO pop in, shoot some uh, sort of light at the dummy warhead and make it so that it just kind of, um, didn't, it spun out after that and, and fell to the ground. And they only noticed this after they developed the film and, uh, that film got taken away by basically men in black. And they were told you never saw this, you never discussed this. And this didn't happen. So, um, I believe that the intention is they're seeing us go down a certain path and they're kind of warning us and nudging us to not go down that path. Uh, but that path is our it's our choice, you know? And I don't think they're going to stop nuclear warfare, but um, they are going to send some messages here and there. And those messages include intervention uh, events like that in in our history, but also uh, you know crop circles leave a message and um, abduction cases as well. Many abductees have had visions of the planet being destroyed by climate change and such so um, I think there's some benevolent um, intervention going on here. I don't know if there isn't some malevolent intervention, but uh, let's hope not.
0: Yeah, let's hope not. Um, we have about a minute left. Uh, you mentioned men in black. I just want to know if either of you have had during your course of investigating, reporting, talking about this stuff, if you've had any threats from what you might consider to be, you know, the the, the, the men in black or dark government forces in some fashion. Steve, have you had any Thing like that happened to you?
1: No, I've never been bothered. That's uh, cool. And let me take this opportunity to quickly mention: uh, I invite all your listeners to uh, follow Paradigm Research Group on Twitter and on Facebook.
0: Terrific, um, Darcy. You any any threats or any uncomfortable situations?
2: No, I haven't. But um, you know, I do believe in men in black encounters, whether that's plain closed strange, nefarious encounters or um, actual military uh, clothed men that have, have showed up after abductees or even exper- UFO experiencers and, and so on have had um, these types of things happen in front of them. But uh, what I will say is... Um, those types of events speak to a constant intervention to control the story and to undermine the disclosure
0: from happening
2: um, in, a, in a broad way. And um, I think it's, it's, that's the scarier part of the story. You know, people may get freaked out and think that there's aliens out there that are here to get us. I don't think that's credible. I think it's more we're a danger to ourselves and there's a lot of um, military intervention to prevent this story from getting out that has either ruined people's lives in the past or um, has really scared people that have had um, these incredible things happen to them in history.
0: Well, like, like, like I said, we've only scratched the surface of the topics we could have addressed tonight, and you, you both are such a wealth of information and a great spokesmen for your causes. Um, hopefully we'll have a chance to bring you back and explore some of these other topics, but thank you so much for being here tonight.
2: No, thank you for having us.
0: Flick at gmail.com.